Hello, welcome to Orion Talks. My name is Suat Cibukcu. I am a senior fellow at Orion Policy Institute, and we have a distinguished guest today, Catherine Wollard. Catherine uh, is the Secretary General of the European Council on Refugees and Exiles, uh, ECRE. Uh, welcome, Catherine. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, yeah, thanks for taking your time. And uh, Catherine, you are leading the institution, ECRE, uh, since 2016. And when you came to the position, the United European Union was experiencing one of the worst uh, refugee crises, and it still continues. Um, would you please introduce the role of ECRE and its mission, uh, especially considering the ongoing refugee crisis? So ECRE is an alliance of NGOs that works to defend the rights of displaced people in Europe, so the right to asylum for those who come to Europe seeking protection, but also in Europe's foreign policy. Um, it, it serves as a vehicle for collective action. So we have more than 100 members in 40 European countries. Our main areas of our activity are litigation and legal support. So we support asylum lawyers dealing with individual cases, and we also run strategic litigation at the European courts and, and also using UN mechanisms. Our second area of activity is advocacy. So lobbying to change policies and to have policies implemented in some cases. And the third area is communications. Uh, where we're trying to put out, let's say, more realistic and less uh, myth-based uh, information on what's actually happening on this issue. So you, you can imagine we have a lot of priorities right now. We've been working in the last six months on uh, Europe's response to the situation in Afghanistan, for instance, but also the events at the borders with Belarus, as well as the ongoing efforts to defend the right to asylum in Europe. Yeah, thank you. So your role is so much important to advance the, the right of refugees, and especially, you know, during this humanitarian crisis. Uh, on the other side, you know, when we look at the flow of refugee population in Europe, and it's much more, you know, blamed for the increasing popularity of far-right political parties, at the same time, you mentioned about the Belarus as well, you know, the authoritarian leaders, um, uh, for example, in Turkey and Belarus actually started to instrumentalize the, um, the immigration policies and also refugees. Uh, in other terms, they weaponize it um, to impose their policies and for their political in interest on European Union. So in a sense, you know, the flow of refugees seems to be play, seems to play in the hands of extremists. So what do you think you, European Union should do to address this issue, to protect the rights and refugees and also asylum seekers at the same time. So I think it's everyth everything to do with the response to this situation. If we look at the, the role of extremist parties, I think we have to remember that unfortunately the far right has always been part of the European political landscape. Uh, un unfortunately, even in post-war Germany, there were extreme right political parties. Um, and in most European countries, their voting share is actually stable or declining, despite the large number of people arriving. So sometimes this is used as a justification for restrictive policies, um, when in fact, um, those parties uh, unfortunately always remain part of our political systems. 
And the numbers of people arriving in Europe are manageable for Europe. Um, and indeed, most of those arriving need protection, which hasn't always been the case when we look at the arrivals of people in Europe. And, and at the same time, Europe also needs new populations. So it's not the worst context for managing this issue. And there are things that make it a particularly tense and challenging issue, though. One is the way in which people arrive. And there's something that is particularly challenging when people arrive by sea. Even historically, we see this. It, it, it stimulates a sort of sense of fear and what we might call an invasion psychosis, um, particularly uh, due to historical reasons in Europe. So I, I think that creates difficulty, even if the numbers are manageable, the manner of arrival um, can provoke problems. I think another problem we've seen is the response of mainstream political parties, which unfortunately have absorbed a lot of the rhetoric and indeed some of the myths that are put forward by the extremists. Um, and we would say also this very unrealistic strategy of trying to prevent the arrivals, all arrivals of people in Europe to seek protection, and it, it is also something that actually creates more problems. The, the, the way that this issue constantly becomes a political crisis is also something that actually plays into the hands of authoritarian and repressive leaders elsewhere. They knew, know that they can stimulate a crisis in Europe and that they can use this issue to um, extract concessions from Europe. And so we would argue that the way to deal with all of that is actually to uh, manage uh, asylum, to have functioning asylum systems in Europe, given that actually it's a very small percentage of those who are displaced globally who actually arrive in Europe seeking protection. Uh, and Europe, uh, given its demographic crises, give, given its wealth, is able to, to manage. Um, so putting in place uh, way functioning asylum systems, finding safe and legal routes for people to arrive at protection so that they don't need to take the dangerous journeys that lead to trauma for them, but that also stimulate this ongoing sense of panic within Europe, uh, with a massive increase, for instance, of resettlement places, of humanitarian corridors, um, student scholarships, all the alternatives to people having to rely on smugglers and cross borders in an irregular way, um, as well as other flanking measures such as attempts to prevent displacement in the first place, or at least not causing it. And um, so we, we say there isn't anything particularly um, challenging about this political moment. It's about having strategies that are realistic um, in order to confront what is a manageable situation um, without resorting to the kind of panic that allows exploitation by extremist forces in Europe and by repressive leaders outside Europe. Yeah, thank you. So you're providing kind of feasible and reasonable kind of um, policies that can actually tackle the uh, the conundrum that actually <laughs> we are overseeing. Um, thank you. And also, you know, there are some other policies that actually EU is um, uh, conducting. One of them is outsourcing the refugee problem to the third countries with the deals and the fundings for example, like the Turkey and some North African countries. Um, do you consider this strategy a kind of a viable solution? No, 
it, it occasionally works in the short term, but outsourcing it cannot work in the long term for a whole variety of reasons. The first one is that other countries actually host far more refugees than Europe does. And so of the, the currently record numbers of people who are globally displaced or displaced globally, uh, around 90% of them are in regions other than Europe. So countries that are already doing so much more than European countries to host refugees are unwilling and uninterested and indeed unable to take on a, far, on a greater share of responsibilities. There's also a lack of um, political will in many countries to assist Europe. Um, I, for instance, I travel frequently in Africa and in many African countries, people, policymakers, ordinary populations, consider that, that people in Europe have gone completely crazy on this issue um, because they deal with far greater numbers of displaced people and, and don't understand why there is this sense of panic in Europe. So they don't, they don't want to help Europe often. Um, and um, I, I would say above all that the strategy of outsourcing allows for the kind of manipulation that we were just discussing. It creates dependency on countries and on regimes indeed that may be unreliable and in some cases repressive and in some cases those regimes those governments are themselves causes of displacement so you actually risk creating the situation where dictators can manipulate people, can instrumentalize people to extract concessions from Europe, can seek other benefits that keep them in power. Um, they, they may, it may be counterproductive in that they may also at the same time be generating displacement by re, um, repression of their own people, undermining security in other ways. Um, and what we see quite often is, is the unreliability uh, whereby particular leaders will take money from Europe with one hand and from smugglers with the other hand and continue to allow people to move um, while claiming uh, that they are attempting to prevent people, which Europe is um, asking them to do. I would just add as well that that kind of approach very much distorts development policy, but also security policy. Um, those external policies, foreign policies, have their own objectives. And if they're allowed to prioritize those objectives, be they creating livelihoods, develop economic development for people in third countries, be they promoting security in the interests of people in those countries. And that actually goes some way towards preventing displacement and giving people um, reasons to stay, uh, tackling potential repression and persecution. So if all of those policies in terms of diplomatic uh, resources and also financial resources are diverted into this futile attempt to prevent movement, and they actually, uh, it creates quite a counterproductive situation. Yeah, uh, thank you. So uh, also it's a kind of multi-dimensional uh, issue and you talk about, you know, dealing with the root cause of the issue. We also some, see some problems at the EU borders. Um, uh, for example, according to fact-finding investigation by the European Parliament, 
European Union has failed to protect the rights of people uh, at the borders uh, like Greece with the illicit pushbacks. And also um, in another report by the Human Rights Watch, um, uh, Frontex has failed to take the necessary action to stop illicit practice of pushbacks and forced asylum seekers and refugees to return to border countries they are coming from. Um, and you know your organization uh, is linked, I think, more than 100 NGOs. And I'm, uh, I would like to know about what does ECRA do to prevent such illicit pushback incidents? And also what can civil society to address, to uh, civil society do to address such illicit activities um, that against the international norms? So we're highly concerned about the situation of flagrant violations at the borders and uh, a seeming impunity when states engage in what are in actions that are illegal under both EU and international law. Our response as civil society is basically in three areas. Firstly, documentation of what's going on, gathering of evidence, witnessing what, what's happening at the borders. Secondly, litigation, um, where efforts are made to get justice for the people who've been affected, but also to deter states from engaging in those actions because there will be consequences uh, in the form of legal procedures. And then thirdly, lobbying and advocacy work in order to try to encourage compliance with the legal obligations that exist in this area. And we, as we were discussing before, one of our alternatives to this situation of attempting to prevent arrivals regardless of the cost and the consequences is to have asylum functioning in Europe, have asylum systems functioning as they should be. So we identify implementation gaps that exist. Um, and one of the main inf implementation gaps is this question of access, access to territory, access to asylum procedures. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what's uh, happening at the borders, a denial um, of uh, access. I, I would add a, as a, a small additional point that there are organizations which are taking direct action. So in a situation where states are refusing to meet their own obligations. There are civil society organizations, but also individuals, volunteers, professionals who step in and do what states should be doing. So we see that, for instance, in terms of search and rescue, where at one point there were 12 ships run by different NGOs operating in the Mediterranean region because the states have uh, been refusing to rescue people. Um, but we also see situations where people are transported across borders by volunteers. Um, and those are not things that we're directly involved in, but they're, they're actions that are being taken in this context. Um, one of the concerns we have currently is that humanitarian action is being restricted and in some cases even criminalized in Europe. And so that kind of response to the state's lack of action may become increasingly difficult with people being put on trial, for instance, for rescuing people who would otherwise have drowned. Thank you. Um, and, you know, um, when we look at the United States, it seems to be, it's pretty much relatively isolated from these refugee crisis that actually comes from uh, the Middle East and in North Africa. 
but also, you know, like the, there is a kind of refugee crisis in the south border of the United States. Uh, I'm just wondering what can the United States do to help the Europe to address the ongoing immigration crisis, especially that comes from North Africa and the Middle East? So I would say it's probably not direct support, um, but forced displacement is a global challenge. So tackling forced displacement requires states working together collectively. And, and there are a number of different ways they can do that. And um, firstly, a, a fair sharing of, uh, of hosting of refugees. So the US has traditionally been a country that uh, accepts quite a large number of refugees. Of course, under the previous government, that was something that ceased. Um, so moving towards and working together to have some sort of fair division, um, which is not provided for, unfortunately, in the Refugee Convention of 1951. That's one of the great weaknesses of the convention. Um, but states need to voluntarily work together to divide uh, responsibility. And secondly, I think states um, offering safe routes to protection so that people aren't forced to take these dangerous, traumatic and politically problematic journeys um, that we've discussed. Um, and there the US has also um, traditionally played a strong role and could again um, engage in what needs to be we would argue a massive expansion of safe routes to reach protection, um, given those uh, the numbers of those who are displaced. Um, but then I think it also comes to this question of what is, as, as you said before, what's sometimes called the root causes, um, that the efforts to prevent displacement in the first place. And there are, according to UNHCR and, and other sources, there are currently record numbers of refugees, of people who have been forcibly displaced. And, and there are multiple things that can be done to try to prevent displacement through the use of foreign policies in a, a constructive way, changing the objectives. But we would also underline the need not to cause displacement in the first place um, and to build into foreign policy a better assessment of things like the risks attached to military intervention um, the arms trade and the extent to which that contributes to displacement. And, and sometimes those things are not connected with the arrival of refugees. But of course, behind those movements, there are all of those kind of causes ranging from external support for repressive regimes to distribution um, of weapons and to, in some cases, intervention. So I think all of those elements contribute. Um, and as a final point, I think, which relates to some of the other issues we've discussed, there's also this question of modeling behavior. And um, for Europe, as for the US, um, one of the most important things that that both can do is respect international law and also their own national obligations when it comes to the rights of displaced people. Um, because if they cease to do so, the countries that actually host the vast majority of displaced people will also start to reject the idea of offering protection. So there's also a, a form of what we might call enlightened self-interest that 
would lead the big countries, um, the, the richer countries, let's say, um, to actually respect uh, legal obligations in this area and to host a fair share of people, even when that's politically controversial sometimes, um, because the alternative to doing that is probably that ultimately more people will arrive seeking protection there because other countries will follow their lead in closing protection space. Um, um, thank you, Catherine. Thanks for taking your time and providing these insightful comments. Um, I appreciate it, and I believe our audience also appreciates listening to the, um, the conversation. Thank you so much, and happy holidays. Um, my pleasure. Great to talk to you. Thanks.